Welcome to Flatbush in Maine, a podcast from Brooklyn Historical Society. Where we make history the Brooklyn way. Each month, Flatbush in Maine digs into Brooklyn's quirky, surprising, diverse history, linking it to the most salient issues shaping our world today. And we give a glimpse into how we make and preserve history every day here at Brooklyn Historical Society, a 153-year-old museum, archives, and urban history center. We are your hosts, Zahir Ali, oral historian at Brooklyn Historical Society. And Julie Golia, director of public history at Brooklyn Historical Society. Meet us at the intersection of Brooklyn's past and present. Zaheer, any guesses on how many neighborhoods there are in Brooklyn? You know, I've actually never thought about it. How many? Well, depending on how granular you get, there may be as many as 60 or 70 neighborhoods just in the borough of Brooklyn alone. Wow, that many, huh? Yep, and in this episode of Flatbush in Maine, we're going to dig deep into just one of those neighborhoods, the neighborhood of Crown Heights in central Brooklyn. But this isn't just a story of a neighborhood. The story of Crown Heights resonates nationally and even transnationally with a lot of issues that we are confronting today. Issues like community and self-determination, cultural clashes, urban density, gentrification and displacement, and policing. So one of the first things that happens with a displacement of people is a displacement of the stories of that people. And I think it's really important for us in thinking about Crown Heights and who Crown Heights is, is thinking about its history. Now, in a way, the vertical file actually also recreates what's problematic about public narratives of Crown Heights in that it focuses on the riots, right? I mean, this is the moment that Crown Heights makes the press, right? That makes the national news, and therefore it's the moment that's recorded The Jews living in Crown Heights feel that they're staying here because the Rebbe is here. They feel the blacks like are not are more you know their being here is arbitrary. It's so interesting that Rabbi Jacobson really identifies his connection to a place as through a person, and that one specific person, the spiritual leader who has sort of staked claim on this neighborhood and said, "This is where we are. This is where we're staying." There's a garden right next to the building I live, where a few years ago it was nothing but a junk, a junkie. They cleared it out and they made a garden of the place. The paradox and of this whole thing is that this this work by people to make their community better is the thing that attracts mm. the developers and it attracts people and it increases the value and an attraction of a neighborhood that then make it unlivable, unaffordable for the people who put in the labor to make it. To turn the junkies into yeah. the garden, exactly. Yeah. Twenty-five years ago, in 1991, Crown Heights made national headlines. That year, long simmering tensions between members of the black and Jewish communities erupted when a car driven by a Jewish driver hit two Afro-Guyanese children, one of them named Gavin Cato, who died. And the three days of violence and unrest that followed included 
the stabbing and killing of a rabbinical student named Yankel, Yankel Rosenbaum by a black teenager. One of the questions that emerged out of the events of August 1991 was the question of who owned Crown Heights, who defined Crown Heights. And it became very clear after the violence of those three days that there were many contested answers to this, to this question. Now, moving into the 21st century, this question of whose Crown Heights continues to resonate, continues to shape people's lives, but actually in very different ways. As property values rise in Crown Heights, as waves of gentrification hit the neighborhood, we see the displacement of families, of communities, and of institutions. And these issues have been a major inspiration for us for a new oral history and documentary project that we are taking on here at Brooklyn Historical Society called Voices of Crown Heights, which is being led by my co-host here, Zahir. Zahir, tell us a little bit more about the project. Voices of Crown Heights is a multi-year oral history project whereby we seek to document the recent history of the neighborhood and really decenter the the riots as the defining moment of this neighborhood's history because it has such a rich history. Part of this means thinking about a, a broader understanding of Crown Heights's history. Yeah, I mean, if we take this question of who's Crown Heights back not 20 years, but 200 or 250 years, I think we can even see, a, obviously, a very different community, but a contested community even back then. That's right. Like so many neighborhoods, Crown Heights has seen waves of people come and go. Yeah, I mean, in in the 18th century, some very key residents of Crown Heights could not come and go. Yeah. And those were enslaved Africans who were tilling the land here, um, owned primarily by a family of Dutch origin. So the area that we today know as Crown Heights was largely owned by the Lefferts family, one of the biggest landowners in early Brooklyn's history. Um, and the and the Lefferts family owned many slaves. Um, do, they're documented well, sort of heartbreakingly well in the collections here at BHS. But this was this was really agricultural land um, in the 18th century. But it's interesting the there, the legal history behind this um, is important because so slavery ends officially in 1827 in New York State. But something happens a couple years before her slavery that really affects the history of this neighborhood, and that's the passage of a state constitution in 1821, which says that any white man can vote in New York State without owning property. But that's not the case for people of color. People of color have minimum property rights and property um, requirements. You have to own and pay taxes on at least $250 worth of property. So even with freedom... Your, your political rights aren't guaranteed. Mm. So there was this added burden and incentive to own property. Yeah, and something really remarkable takes place in the area that is now known as Crown Heights um, that turns its history of unfreedom on its head. By the end of the 1830s, the Lefferts begin to sell off their land and they sell a parcel of it to a man named Henry C. Thompson, who is African-American, who then repackages it and sells it to other African-American men. And we start to see the emergence of a neighborhood called Weeksville. For a while then, 
Weeksville was the first concentrated settlement in what we know as Crown Heights, right? Yes, and I think this it sets a standard for the idea of property ownership as political power or mm, political mm-hmm. leverage in a way that I think will continue to resonate into, into the 20th century. By the time we get to the turn of the 20th century, other parts of Crown Heights are emerging as rather tawny suburbs with these sort of beautiful single-family homes. That's right. I think in the in the 1900s or early 1900s, this was at that time known as the St. Mark's District. Yeah, you could uh, call this our first wave of gentrification. That's right. That's right. In Crown Heights's history. That's right? right. What is evolving into Crown Heights is a predominantly white neighborhood with with this pocket of black owners in Weeksville. Right. And I think that's so key to understanding an urban story is that story of urban density and the fact that a a wealthy white family living in a beautiful Queen Anne style house is living not far from a neighborhood that by the early 20th century is pejoratively called Crow Hill um, in reference to the African-American communities that are emerging there. You know, as we move into the 20th century now, this neighborhood begins to change in really significant, transformative ways. While you can certainly correlate populations with the forces of urbanization, right, and settlement and displacement and industrialization and, you know, waves of employment and transportation opportunities and so forth and so on, we sometimes lose sight that these are people who are in part willfully moving to the neighborhood or willfully willfully leaving but but oftentimes that movement is incentivized in certain respects and also discouraged in other respects yeah right? i mean there's structural forces that push people to places and pull people from places or right. drive people that's from right places, that's right. right i mean and this is significant within brooklyn itself but it's also significant internationally right, right. And so we do start to see two major um, population groups moving in from outside of the united states and beginning to again reshape Crown Heights, you know, the first is a Caribbean community. So we start to see Caribbean immigrants moving into Crown Heights, I mean, around the turn of the 20th century. That's right. That's right. I think the the earliest um, that we have documented was in the 1890s. I think this is also important because I think a lot of people think of the Caribbean population as a recent 20th century or mid-century thing. And certainly there are significant waves that came during that time. And then, of course, another group that you start to see coming in in the 1940s are um, Hasidic Jewish populations coming primarily from the Soviet Union. So, again, an interesting way to think about the push and the pull factors that are bringing people to the area. And what's interesting is that a lot of people thinking about Crown Heights and the Jewish community in Crown Heights, while the Hasidic community is probably the most significant Jewish community or has been the most significant Jewish community for much of the last half century, that's changing now. And it certainly wasn't that way at the turn of the century, right? For, for the first half of the 20th century, there were many different Jewish communities settling in Crown Heights coming from Eastern Europe. Uh, the Hasidic community, though, has a special claim on the neighborhood, in part because they're establishing their international headquarters in 1940 uh, at 770 Eastern Parkway. This is like a famous address. And this was where the Rebbe 
it was centered. And the Rebbe was like the spiritual leader of this community. And the Hasidic community is a, Hasid means piety. And it's a very a deeply spiritual community that adheres very closely to the Jewish laws and rituals. And part of that means observing the Sabbath, where uh, you need to be in walking distance to the temple. Your homes need to be in close proximity to each other. And so this helped to define that part of Crown Heights for the half century. It's a place-based community. It requires that kind of spatial intimacy. At the time, Crown Heights was still predominantly white. And in that 20-year period, though, between 1940 and 1960, there is a significant transformation taking place, not just in Crown Heights, but all of Brooklyn and really in cities around the country with uh, increased migration. You have the second wave of the what we call the Great Migration of, of African Americans coming from the South and then for New York also of, of Caribbean migrants coming to New York. And you have something that people call white flight where whites are, are through incentives to move out to the suburbs are leaving Brooklyn. And in fact, between 1940 and 1960, more than half a million white residents left Brooklyn. And at the same time that this is happening, you also see the important economic paradigm of deindustrialization as many businesses move out of the city center to areas outside of the city or even to the south. And as a result, loss of jobs, city um, government divestment. Mm -hmm. And so this is economically a, a, rather, a rather dark time in New York City's history. What made Crown Heights really interesting is that while Crown Heights, like many of the neighborhoods in Brooklyn and cities around the country, experienced what we call white flight, the Hasidic movement, which predominantly which is a white community, right, did Stay not put. Leave. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, they couldn't. In yeah. fact, in 1969, the Rebbe at the time told them they had it was their their religious obligation to not abandon each other. Crown Heights during this time has a significant Caribbean population that through their maintenance of ties with their islands that that includes trade and commerce and the need to to recreate kind of cultural institutions in Crown Heights. So you 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 know Crown Heights isn't like a no man's land, right? It is actually quite vibrant during this time. Yeah, I think um on a national level, neighborhoods like Crown Heights and Bedford-Stuyvesant become these kind of symbols of urban blight, right? They become the icon of the ghetto, if you will. And that again, there's an there's an obscuring there of the institutions that are established here, the buildings, the places where people gather, and these are things that you can kind of only maybe grasp on the ground when you're in the space, but um, are essential to understanding what happens in Crown Heights in the 1980s and the 1990s. That's right. Probably one of the most visible example of the flourishing of life. <laughs> in these communities uh, is seen not only with the um, gatherings during the High Holy Days uh, in the Hasidic community, but is seen, for example, Labor Day weekend, the largest West Indian celebration 
carnival-like celebration in North America, which happens right in Crown Heights on on Labor Day on that. And and leading up to that, like if you were to drive through or walk through Crown Heights, you can hear people practicing on the steel drums. You can see storefronts have opened up where people are preparing their costumes. I mean, this is this is a real flourishing uh, culture in 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 the neighborhood. And in fact, to further complicate the sort of two-dimensional idea of Crown Heights as this sort of dangerous place, if you look at newspaper articles from the from the 1980s, we start to see that the word gentrification is already starting That's to right. come up, right? That's right. That there's already concerns about property rises and the displacement of communities, which uh, I think, again, disrupts this this idea of the 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 um, black and white story yeah. um, that emerges yeah. in and after the riots. Yeah, and I think it it behooves us to pay attention to this history, right? Because one of the things, one of the first things that happens with a displacement of people is a displacement of the stories of that people. And I think it's really important for us in thinking about Crown Heights and who Crown Heights is is thinking about its history. During research for this episode and for the Voices of Crown Heights project, you know, there's so many resources here at BHS. We were trying to figure out what we could use in in particular for this episode. And we were kind of like going through the library, going through different parts of the library, and then Julie suggested to me something which, uh, to be quite honest, I'd never heard of, something called a vertical file. And um, I have to say I wasn't very excited because I didn't expect much out of this thing. It just looked like an ordinary file cabinet, yeah, right? Yeah, so what is a vertical file? Why would, why would you suggest that to me? One of the neat things about working at an institution that is 150-something years old now is that it's collected things over times. And so in a lot of ways, the things that we see around the library from a, a card catalog to just a simple black filing cabinet reflect the history of the way that librarians have worked over time, which has its own history and has changed a lot. Um, I was just doing a little bit of research on file cabinets uh, recently and learned that um, filing cabinets, which seem like sort of boring and old and outdated in our digital world, were the cutting edge of sort of technical professional librarianship in the turn of the century, rather than relying on things like scrapbooks where you'd have to clip things and glue them and that would come apart. Here's this like organized, straightforward way of keeping things. And so we have these things called vertical files, which I think a really simple way of thinking about them is they're like a miscellaneous box, right? So we are an institution that has archives and manuscript collections. But if you've got some extra things that don't sort of warrant their own manuscript collections, put them in the vertical file. Somebody brings in an article about a particular topic, put it in the vertical file. And the materials pile up and pile up and pile up until they become their own rich resource. That's starting to sound like my desk at home. but <laughs> Many of us. I think I probably have the makings of many of these vertical files at oh, home. 
this is it, it, this is organized by subject, right? Um, so we can go in there and look under neighborhoods, and then under neighborhoods we can look under Crown Heights, and come up with a legal vertical file that is about an inch deep, filled with things like flyers. Um, Xeroxes of newspaper clippings, programs from events, and a whole bunch of other documents, which seem simple on their own, but together tell a rich story. So you know, uh, you know, um, it's a lot of newspaper clippings, right? And I guess I was skeptical because of the nature of how this is collected. So it seems really randomly put together, and so. How dependable is this? Like, what do you use this? You well, of course, the question is, how can you trust any source, right? So there are enormous holes in all of our resources here at BHS. If we think about a collection um, that we might have here that might have 30 boxes, that may seem just in its heft to be the most exhaustive thing about a particular topic. But in reality, it may just be a drop in the bucket of how one can understand and interpret this topic. That's true. That's so true. like any file, like any kind of record, we need to go into it with a very careful um, sort of um, analytical eye when we look at it. Now, one of the things I like about it, here's my pitch for the vertical file. Um, these things are almost created at a moment when mm -hmm. things happen. Mm -hmm. Now, if you look at documents that are created when the moment something happens, which of course is the essence of a primary source, right. they're they're deeply subjective because they're emotional. They're created. Right. They're created around a crisis, but there's an honesty in that. Um, there's a lot. There's a lack of room for reflection that allows you to capture the the most raw essence of the things that were going on at the well, moment. Well, you know, and that's what I. So, so that's what kind of convinced me as to the value of this. Like, well, on the one hand, I was like skeptical of the comp. Like, I don't. And this is pretty randomly put together. But I like that, like you said, at the moment, like there's an immediacy to what's in this folder. There's no trappings with a vertical file of of thinking there's any kind of organization right, with right. it, right? It's clearly something that's put been put something things have been thrown together over time and from really disparate sources. But that is the gem about it. So you can read um, the same newspaper articles from the same day from six different newspapers, for example, right. and see the difference in their editorial True. tone, right? And, and, you know, there's this almost kind of, um, I, I would say, kind of joy of discovery. Um, it's like a magic eight ball of an archive where you, like, shake it and it gives you an answer Absolutely. that's randomly. And, and when you when you open this vertical file, I mean, one of the things that strikes me and this is something that I think you wouldn't find in another kind of archival source, right? Is that it is a compilation of articles from a multi from multiple media sources, and 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 certainly the Crown Heights riot or unrest from 1991 figures prominently in this file from from many different sources, and so you you get this kind of immediate sense of how significant an event this was in in not just you know for crown heights but like i mean these are these are significant on a national public, level on a national yeah, level right absolutely and such a, in like a multiplicity of different kinds of articles, you have op-eds, you have the on the ground coverage of it, you have really remarkable photojournalism yeah oftentimes in these digital archives they don't have permission to post the pictures so you don't even see the pictures right you see a big block but here you actually see 
see the pictures and you kind of see the progression, the way this file was kept. You see the progression of the anxiety and fear and and recrimination coming from each side to the other. I mean, you you do send the this is the visceralness of this 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 incident comes across with this file and the sorrow. Yeah, and the mourning. You know, reflections on the events of August 1991, two, three, four years later, or 20 years later will always lose the edge of the loss mm-hmm. of both communities mm-hmm. and the deaths that took place on mm-hmm. both sides. And you can see that kind of bitter pain really right up close and personal. Yeah, and because it, it's it's stacked on, it's uh, the pain and sorrow are, are figuratively and literally in these articles stacked on top of each other. And you really get that sense in a way that, I mean, yes, somebody could do research on various newspapers and print them out and, and recreate this. But here it is. It's, it's done. It's like you get this, this, this sense of it. Now, in a way, the vertical file actually also recreates what's problematic about public narratives of Crown Heights in that it focuses on the riots, right? I mean, this is the moment that Crown Heights makes the press, right? That it makes the national news. And therefore, it's the moment that's recorded. Whereas, you know, the opening of, you know, a new, um, you know, tenants organization isn't going to make the front page of, of Newsday. So that's an, such an important grain of salt that I think we have to, to take here. But this folder, while it's heavy, on 1991 isn't just 1991. That's right. I mean, one of the articles that we stumbled upon as we were flipping through is from, I'll read the the opening line, says, Crown Heights is being rediscovered. And it goes on to talk about, you know, Crown Heights is this place that people are now moving in. The pull quote is gentrification without displacement. And you wouldn't guess the date of this article. This could be, you know, 2014, right? But it's not. It's 1985. And so, you know, this this even frames our story of gentrification. And I feel like this article it, it perfectly encapsulates the value of the vertical file. You, you know, you likely never would have stumbled across this tiny little article somewhere buried in the real estate section of the New York Times, um, yet it makes you completely rethink the way that you might periodize the neighborhood and the communities there and its perception um, in in the New York of, of 1985. You know, if you come in thinking Crown Heights is just about the story of a riot and you go through this vertical file, you'll find Crown Heights is also about a long standing or a long history of concern and anxiety over this question of who lives here, who gets to live here, who can afford to live here. I would have never come across this had I not looked at this Crown Heights vertical file. So thank you for introducing me and us to just another resource um, that people can take advantage of here at DHS. For our Voices of Brooklyn segment, we are going to listen to two um, residents of Crown Heights who articulate very clear and very different notions of cultural ownership of the neighborhood. That's right. These two oral histories are taken from our Crown Heights History Project collection, oral histories. 
the Crown Heights History Project was a project that BHS started uh, in conjunction with uh, Weeksville Heritage Center and the Brooklyn Children's Museum in 1993. And this was actually done uh, in part as a in response to the 91 riots. But the oral histories in this collection, and there are 31 oral history interviews, document from multiple perspectives uh, histories of the neighborhood. And so the first clip we are going to listen to is from Rabbi Simon Jacobson, who was born in Crown Heights in 1956. The Jews living in Crown Heights feel that they're staying here because the Rebbe is here. They feel the blacks like are not are more you know their being here is arbitrary. If they have a good deal, they'll sell. Because Crown Heights is not like they're they have no Rebbe here. They they're just comfortable here. It can seem to the person that's living there. I live here. You know, this is my home. People leaving notes and doors. You know, if you want to sell your house, call. And when enough people do it, people feel that the blacks began feeling like they're being driven out, which wasn't the intention. It's so interesting that Rabbi Jacobson really identifies his connection to a place as through a person, and that one specific person, the spiritual leader who has sort of staked claim on this neighborhood and said, this is where we are, this is where we're staying. So it gives him even more of a sense of, of, of access and of claim over, over the neighborhood. This is such a rich clip for me because when you when you research some of the the tensions in in Crown Heights or even the the questions about gentrification, one of, one of the things that comes up is this like aggressive seeking out of property, right? Like this, uh, what people feel is an aggressive solicitation uh, to sell their property, and uh, certainly developers are doing that now. But this clip kind of gives another dimension to it. He says, like, this wasn't the intention to make people feel like we were driving them out of the community. You know, earlier in in our episode, we talked about in 1969 how the Rebbe told the members of the Hasidic community in Crown Heights, like, they had to stay in Crown Heights. And so there is an incentive to secure as much property as possible, as close as possible to to the the community headquarters. I think it gives us this dimension of like understanding where that may have come from. Well, there's a justification there, yeah. right? I yeah. mean, there's a real articulation of this is how I justify my uh, what might be seen as sort of an aggressive real estate right, tactic. Right, right. And I think what's fascinating is when we think about, you know, sort of like rabid um, real estate developers, right, right. we think about these wholly motivated by economics. Right, and right. this offers a new dimension. This is a, a religious motivation. Yes, motivation. Yes. For many people, especially in the Hasidic community, their claim to... Crown Heights is very much a spiritual claim, a religious claim tied to this this the presence of the Rebbe. And what a fascinating way to frame it against what he sees as um, an interest in black Brooklynites and staying in the neighborhood is um, that their interest in that place is is arbitrary. That's the word that he I, uses. Yeah, I thought that was a fascinating turn for him to say, you know, they're being here is arbitrary. They don't have a Rebbe. But what I think his comments show is a lack of understanding or ignorance, maybe, of other kinds of quote-unquote yes. rebbies, right? Yes. Like There are other ways that people can feel attached to a neighborhood. There are other ways that people can feel committed to a neighborhood. There are other meanings that a neighborhood can have for people that could be just as compelling 
as a as a religious uh, commitment. And I think our next clip illustrates that really well. This next clip is taken from an interview with Iyadun Entz, who at the time of the interview in 93 was 20 years old. He was born in Harlem, but he grew up in Crown Heights. If you look around, You will see uh, plants that are growing that grew because of a a cooperative effort between some people. Uh, There are a lot of gardens around the area where there were just, there were a lot of gardens like. there's a garden right next to the building I live where a few years ago it was nothing but a junk, a jokey. They cleared it out and they made a garden of the place. I mean, it's not the most beautiful garden you've ever seen, but it's there. And it's, it's an effort to try to make this community somewhat better. You know, Zaheer, the, the premise of the Voices of Crown Heights project is listening. But the theme that I love in this clip is the idea of looking around. Mm-hmm. Um, and he keeps returning to this, and it seems to me so key that you need to know what to look for. Um, and you might walk past a bunch of plants that aren't the best-looking plants that you've ever right. seen, but if you can look, if you can really see something, you'll see that that's a seed of community effort. That's something that a group of people have done to make their neighborhood more beautiful. That's a, a claiming of an abandoned land. So I just thought there was something so poetic about his approach to analyzing the space that he lived. Yeah, and I think it also emphasizes the importance of history, right? Because Part of being able to appreciate this garden, which he says, is, you know, it might not be all that, is is knowing what was there before. And so part of understanding the labor that is reflected in this garden is knowing the history of this space, right? And so one of the points that people who are troubled by gentrification is the lack of the history, that people come who are new to a neighborhood, assuming what is there has always been there, what is there, you know, is, is they, they don't know is what the structure is. to take. Yeah. It's a frontier uh, attitude, yeah, right? Yeah, it's go west, yeah. young man. And there's no sense of the struggle yeah. that was required to, to make this a beautiful place. So, like, this was in 93, and I, we don't know what became of this garden, but let's say this garden continued to grow and became this beautiful lot. Like, the paradox and of this whole thing is that this this work by people to make their community better is the thing that attracts mm. developers and it attracts people and, and increases the value and, and attraction of a neighborhood that then make it unlivable, unaffordable for the people who put in the labor to make it. To turn the junkies into yeah. the garden. Exactly. Yeah. And I think one thing that people often don't know about Crown Heights is that that actually garden building and tilling land and turning it into beautiful spaces is actually at the heart of institution building in the 70s and 80s in Crown Heights. We have a collection, the Eastern Parkway Coalition. Uh, I mean, a good half of this enormous collection is dedicated to the to the minutes and the flyers and the events 
held around building gardens. And so this is sort of a maybe an unusual and unorthodox notion of an institution right. when we think about, you know, churches or community centers. But the gardens were at the center of people's of people's community building in Crown Heights. Yeah. And I, I mean, it, it opens up discussions about food sovereignty and urban gardening, fighting to grow food where there are food deserts. The other, the other interesting thing I think is just like it's poetic about this is that we started this conversation, this podcast about the role of people of African descent yes. in tilling the land, yes. right? Yes. And uh, here we are essentially kind of coming back to that, uh, that, that, that theme. And about a community searching for self-determination, right? And the idea of taking that land and making it something that benefits you within, that benefits your people, is such a constant in the 19th century that, that in a through line through into the 20th and, and 21st centuries. You can listen to the full oral histories of Iadun Ince and Rabbi Simon Jacobson on our show notes. So here, I'm looking forward to September, hoping it's going to cool off a little bit. But even if it cools off, things are definitely heating up here at Brooklyn Historical Society in terms of our programs and events. That's right. We have a full calendar of events coming up in this season, and it's so hard to just choose one to highlight, but we've we've selected a couple, and um, the one that I think I have my eye on is the event called Are We There Yet? The Illusion of a Post-Sexist Society, and this is part of the Let's Talk Feminism series. It is taking place Thursday, September 8th at 7 p.m. It is a paid event, so it's $10 for the general public, $5 for BHS members, so you should become a BHS member. This event is a panel discussion that explores the reality that we now have a female candidate for president for one of the major parties. And does this mean that we're in a post-sexist society? So I think we, half, I think we, we acknowledge <laughs> that we don't. We, we know. Right. But, you know, it's, it's, it's so funny. It's like people thought Obama, I mean, people yeah. started this conversation about post-racialism with Obama. And I think people are going to try to use the the the, the possibility and, and, and maybe eventuality of a female president to sideline important discussions about continued sexism. And so in this panel will be Marcia Gillespie from Ms. and Essence Magazines, Anna Holmes from Jezebel.com, Mathoni Wambu-Kral from Emily's List, and Rebecca Traster, author of All the Single Ladies. And it will be moderated by Teresa Younger, uh, president and CEO of the Ms. Foundation for Women. So that, again, is Thursday, September 8th at 7 p.m. here at BHS. That is a powerhouse panel. It sure is. So what are you looking forward to? So the week after that, Friday, September 16th, we are starting up our free Fridays again here at BHS. So we took the summer off, but we're back to welcoming people um, to BHS um, on the evening of one Friday a month. So we'll see you at 5 o'clock on September 16th at, B- 16th at BHS, where you'll get in for free. You can enjoy live music. Uh, you can explore exhibitions, and you can take part in a bunch of very fun activities that are themed around back to school. 
So there'll be people there um, um, running sort of a home ec class. Um, There's going to be a group of people reading entries from their middle school diaries. Um, The Society for the Advancement of Social Studies will be providing a little bit of history about our favorite New York City landmarks. Um, It's a great place to come on a date or with your kids or meet with your friends. So everybody should head out to BHS on the evening of September 16th. And it's kind of a great segue for us into our next episode, which is going to take on a subject about education. We're going to be looking at the history of school segregation and desegregation throughout Brooklyn's history. And with this episode of Flatbush in Maine, we've made Brooklyn history. You can learn more about Flatbush in Maine at brooklynhistory.org slash flatbush-maine. There you'll find more details from each episode, pictures of documents and artifacts, and clips and info on oral histories. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and rate us at iTunes or any other podcast platform you use. Our show music is by Joe Sloss. Find out more about him at josephschloss.com. Tune in each month for lots more Brooklyn history. From Brooklyn Historical Society, we are your hosts, Zahir Ali and Julie Golia.